Welcome to the Continued Learning Podcast. My name is Dr. Katrina Matthews and I'm Managing Editor at Continued Social Work. Today's podcast features our host, Dr. Ben Bencomo, discussing intimate partner violence, Black men as allies, with our guest, Dr. Stephanie Howard. Thanks for listening. Thank you, Dr. Matthews. I am very excited to welcome our guest today, who has a very unique practice experience and fantastic ideas for working in the area of intimate partner violence. Dr. Stephanie Howard is a licensed clinical social worker and is an assistant professor at Norfolk State University with the School of Social Work. She is the founder and president of a nonprofit organization called Communities in Power. She is the Vice Chair on the Social Services Advisory Commission for the Norfolk Department of Human Services and serves on multiple state advisory boards in child welfare. Dr. Howard is an active member on the Council on Racial, Ethnic, and Cultural Diversity with the Council on Social Work Education. She has over a dozen publications in the area of social work practice with diverse populations. Dr. Howard is presented at academic conferences around the nation on topics pertinent to social work services. She has practice experience as a clinical therapist in domestic violence counseling and a social worker with child protective services. Dr. Howard, thank you for joining us today and welcome. Thank you. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to be here. Thank you, Dr. Howard. I like to begin these podcasts. I'm always interested in people's journey to social work. So if you wouldn't mind sharing with our listeners, uh, how did social work find you? And, and a little bit about your, your own social work education and practice, if you wouldn't mind. Sure, absolutely. Uh, so it's been um, quite a journey, I suppose, for uh, me in social work. I've known I've wanted to study social work since high school. Uh, My guidance counselor actually introduced me to it. Uh, But I I really struggled kind of to find my way and and to find my place in social work. So I started off, I used to say in undergrad, I said, I want to inform policies and practices in child welfare. But I didn't know what that meant or what that looked like. <laughs> so I, I I got my bachelor's and then my master's, and I still didn't know what to do. So I kind of um, floated in the field. You know, I did child protective services and domestic violence counseling, um, and I've, I've worked in a school. I've, I've done lots of diverse things in the field, uh, but I did not find my way until I decided I wanted to get my doctoral degree. Uh, so. I actually applied to a school because I was interested in teaching and I knew I needed to get my doctoral degree. So I applied to a school and uh, I was turned down. <laughs> uh, they said, you have no interest in research. And I, I said, yeah, that's true. <laughs> I just want to teach. Um, and so I decided to get some experience in, uh, in research and I fell in love with research. Uh, and so then I applied to Howard University and uh, their doctoral program. I was at, uh, accepted and I graduated from that program with my PhD. So now I feel like I've found my place <laughs> teaching and doing research and, and doing some practice on the side. That's amazing. Thank you for sharing. Feels like it, it's maybe gone full circle from early bachelor days of, of wanting to inform policy to getting that practice 
practice experience and then the the research focus um, with the doctorate to be able to actually do that at this point in your career. I have a good friend and colleague who um, often says micro is macro and macro is micro. So that that understanding of the the micro needs of the community definitely, I'm sure, helps to to inform and and enlighten your research in, in many different ways. Absolutely. Yeah, Absolutely. I've always been very interested in macro, but kind of pushed toward micro. So I do, I did get my clinical license, but I love the macro work and, and doing research. Absolutely. I think you and I share that passion. That's a passion that I developed later on in my career because I, I just knew I was going to practice micro forever. And then as social work paths often do, um, ended up getting really interested in that those macro level policy issues that really were having a, an effect on what I was seeing with my work with individuals and with families. So yeah, absolutely. Dr. Howard, um, I would love to hear, how did you first uh, become interested in working in the area specifically of intimate partner violence? And, and if you could share, um, how would you define that, that idea, that concept of what intimate partner violence entails? Sure. So I initially was not interested in working in the area of domestic violence, um, which I, I use domestic violence and um, intimate partner violence interchangeably even though we recognize that uh, domestic violence is a broader term, right, referring to, uh, you know, child abuse or any type of violence within a family setting. Uh, intimate partner violence refers to more so uh, violence that's happening within a, a, a um, romantic relationship. Uh, but I was interested more so in working with children. Uh, and so I started uh, in the child welfare system, I started working um, with Child Protective Services, and I, I was encountering children who were exposed to domestic violence. And I, I really didn't have enough understanding about the dynamics of domestic violence to really be uh, sensitive uh, to, the, to the issue. And my path ended up taking me to from Child Protective Services to counseling in a domestic violence agency. Uh, and so that's really where I started to understand like the dynamics and the needs and, and how people get into uh, situations in, in which there is violence in their relationship and how they can really be kind of trapped in those relationships. Uh, and so that's really what helped me to, I guess, grow my sensitivity and understanding uh, and my empathy for individuals in those situations and wanting to like learn more and kind of build uh, more approaches for working with those populations, particularly uh, from, from a cultural perspective. So what we know is that domestic violence tends to happen disproportionately in Black communities. And this is because of reasons of like systemic issues, um, uh, uh, poverty. We know that poverty influences violence and, or rates of violence. So there are systemic reasons, but we see that violence tends to happen in relationships in Black communities at higher rates. And women tend to experience abuse at higher rates. And, and even when they experience abuse, they're more likely to be killed as a result of that abuse. Uh, so I really wanted to kind of focus on that area and to identify ways that we can address the issue from a cultural perspective, because it is a, it's a cultural issue, is a community issue. 
Um, so when in looking at domestic violence, we want to recognize that domestic violence is not just like an isolated incident. Uh, it's not just, um, you know, an, an individual assault. So, of course, assaulting someone in a relationship is wrong, but it's not necessarily domestic violence. Domestic violence refers to more of a pattern of violent behavior or a pattern of controlling and coercive behaviors. Uh, it also entails physical abuse, emotional abuse, sexual abuse. Uh, so they can all be experienced all at the same time and it kind of um, uh, going through cycles of, of violence and control and abuse. Absolutely. Um, now, I think your your background and your um, when you first began discussing this topic, talking about uh, starting your professional career in child welfare, having that understanding. I think as the profession has evolved, we've understood the interplay really between all these different factors. So um, I wonder if your experiences in child welfare and with our knowledge of ACEs has has informed your understanding of of family dynamics in that way, and in in regard to systemic uh, influence that 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 you were talking about, how has your understanding of intimate partner violence or domestic violence evolved over time through those various practice experiences? For sure. Um, so interestingly enough, my dissertation actually deals with um, the impact of intimate partner violence on the family system. So it looks at how children encounter intimate partner violence, even when they're not the victim. So intimate partner violence, again, deals with the, the couple, the partners um, experiencing violence in, in that relationship. So when children are not the victims, they are still impacted by that abuse and they can be impacted in direct ways as well as indirect ways. Uh, and so I, kind of looking at that, um, the impact of, of violence within the system was kind of like the, um, I guess, a joining of my different experiences. It was the, the um, intersection of the child protective services experiences with the the domestic violence counseling experiences. It kind of came together, uh, and so that was certainly an evolution in my understanding personally of domestic violence. But as a field, we've also evolved over time. Um, so initially, we would rely on the cycle of abuse model to understand domestic violence. Um, so that model involves three stages. And, and those three stages uh, are begin with the honeymoon phase, right? So the honeymoon, is, no one would stay in a relationship if, if it started off violent. So the relationship pretty much starts off um, very sweet and nice, and um, we refer to it as the honeymoon stage when everyone's loving and, and, and you know, they're um, very, there's a lot of closeness and intimacy in, in the relationship. But in relationships where there's abuse, it doesn't stay in that phase. It it moves towards this phase where um, there's some tension and the tension continues to build over time. Uh, that stage moves into an explosion uh, in which there's some violent episode, there's some aggression, there's some um, physical abuse that takes place. Uh, and then the cycle repeats, which is why it's referred to as a cycle, because they continue to cycle through these stages. Uh, and so it's a really great model for understanding how abuse 
uh, happens within in, in patterns and how it, it continues over time. But it's limited because it, it tends to only focus on like the physical part of abuse. But we know that domestic violence is much more than physical. There's also sexual abuse and there's emotional abuse. Um, and there are different ways in which a partner can make someone feel small in a relationship. And so um, later research came out to promote uh, a different model, kind of replace the cycle of abuse model, and it's the power and control wheel. So the power and control wheel focuses on the different behavioral tactics in a relationship, uh, behaviors that an individual will engage in in order to control their partner and to make them feel small. And these behaviors interact with physical and sexual abuse. Uh, Certainly when there's physical and sexual abuse, these behaviors, these tactics, uh, they carry more weight. Uh, And so this power and control wheel was developed based off of research with women who'd experienced abuse. Uh, And they had identified that these behaviors made them feel like they didn't have power in their relationship. They made them feel like they were being controlled by their partner, made them feel, um, made them feel small, made them, and, and, and made them feel worthless. And, and, and um, it was, it was believed that these tactics in the relationship actually carry, um, long-term consequences that were harder to recover from than the physical abuse. So um, it's really important to be able to identify the non-physical ways in which people are being uh, controlled and mistreated in their relationships because they can have such powerful impacts, particularly long-term on individuals. And so that's what the power and control will does. So inside the power and control wheel are the tactics, and then on the outside are the um, physical and sexual abuse, because there's an understanding that they're connected, um, and and, uh, one influences the other. Thank you for that. Um, That that visual depiction of that wheel and that understanding, um, I wonder if does that help you to to get a visual representation maybe of the different family system dynamics, the different um, outside of family dynamics that are influencing uh, those that power and control cycle as well? Absolutely. So when you look at the um, different tactics on uh, uh, listed in the power con- and control wheel, you'll actually see that using children is one of the tactics. Uh, and so they're directly implicated in this um, cycle of abuse. Uh, and so in, in using children, partners will manipulate children in order to harm their partner. Uh, I think a really great, unfortunate example, um, Kanye West, I, I heard in the news that he uh, wanted um, something for his children. And so he, uh, you know, put his children's information, uh, made it public and it created uh, some risk for his children, right? And so he's trying to uh, manipulate his partner, his ex-partner, um, in order to you know, get his his way, to have his way. Um, so in, in different ways, using children in order to have some control over their partner or ex-partner. Um, and, and the power and control will actually allows us to, to see how, 
a partner who uses abuse in their relationship can continue to abuse their partner even after the the relationship has ended as well as it can it can demonstrate you know, how abuse can have long-term effects on individuals another tactic is um, using uh, economic abuse so that's listed on the power and control wheel and by using economic abuse by um, not allowing their partner to maintain a job or using their finances in a way um, that denies them the opportunity for financial freedom and independence, those can have long-term effects on someone. It can really kind of trap them in a relationship or, or in a housing situation, um, or it can have long-term impacts on their career. So the power and control will is a really powerful uh, it's a really powerful image or visual and also tool to help us understand what abuse looks like and to move away from those um, just focusing on physical abuse. While physical abuse, of course, is not acceptable in a relationship and it is, of course, very damaging. We also want to recognize other ways in which abuse shows up in relationships. Yes, that makes that makes so much sense. I know that a conversation I often have with students in my classroom when we're talking about domestic uh, violence or intimate partner violence as well um, is the idea of those power dynamics. But also, I hear often from students, you know, oh, you know, I would I want to work in supporting victims of domestic violence, but I could never work with perpetrators. I could never work with the people who have the power in that um, relationship. Now, while we understand that intimate partner violence does happen in same-sex couples and happens in um, it, that uh, men can also be victims of in a, intimate partner violence, we, we do understand that a lot of times um, perpetrators of, of intimate partner violence can be men as well. I wonder, in your experience, um, why is it important to include men in intimate partner violence work? For sure. Um, so I appreciate, uh, uh, I think one of my concerns um, when I was uh, working it with, in the domestic violence field uh, as a practitioner was working with uh, individuals who uh, committed abuse against their partner it is a it's challenge every all work in social work is challenging right but it certainly takes a, a certain skill set to be able to work with folk who have um, abused people or um, uh, mistreated people but it's also a really great opportunity uh, and so whether individuals are mandated or or they have volunteered to seek help, it's a great opportunity to help someone change their behaviors. And so working with survivors of abuse is really very rewarding work. Uh, you know, seeing someone recover from something so damaging, it, it feels good, but it's also such a powerful opportunity to help someone discontinue using abusive tactics in their relationship. And many people, will come into programs where they are learning how to stop using um, abusive uh, tactics, they will identify, listen, that they have been using these tactics for some time. Maybe they've been exposed to some really harmful lessons in the past, particularly from their childhood, and, and they want to stop. And, and they just need help in order to learn something new. And so 
it's an opportunity to teach them. And so whether that they come in with that insight and that motivation, or you can help them get there, you know, if you can stop the abuse from occurring in the first place, it's such a great opportunity. I think, and even for those uh, men who are not engaging in abusive uh, behaviors, we can also engage them as allies, right? Because they can hold people accountable in their peer groups. They can also help to identify um, red flags of abuse. They can promote nonviolent behaviors. They can do a lot of work within their own peer groups, within their surroundings. Um, And it's also, it's really important to get information out there about nonviolence because there's a lot of toxic information, particularly online. If you're online, uh, there's research that shows that uh, men in particular can be really inundated with uh, toxic uh, messages about toxic masculinity, as well as misogyny um, and and violence against women. And so really kind of countering those messages is really important. Uh, so whether some uh, someone is actively engaging or has a history of abusive behaviors, it's really important to get men involved in the work. Um, they can be very influential in the anti-domestic violence work. That makes a lot of sense. Um, you, you talk about men being able to um, use their voice. And so it brings to mind th- this idea of intersectionality in, um, in, in the privilege that, that is afforded men in our society to be able to use that voice. But also, um, earlier you talked about your work and your experience working in, in Black communities in, in terms of domestic violence in those communities. Um, I wonder if you would share with our listeners um, a little bit about the work that you've been doing to engage Black men as allies in the field. Because with our understanding of intersectionality, we know that within one person, we can have um, locations of power and also um, locations of um, of uh, re- different uh, competing dynamics, I guess is what I'm trying to say, right? Experiences of oppression and experiences of not having that power and that voice. So I wonder if you'd share with our listeners um, a a bit about the work that you've been doing to engage Black men as allies in this work. For sure. Um, So one of the challenges in working with uh, men in Black communities is that there isn't a lot of research out there. Uh, so what we wanted to do was, um, and I've been doing a lot of work with uh, a local domestic violence agency, Samaritan House, so I just want to make sure um, I shout out to them. <laughs> um, but we, we've been, it was important for us to kind of build the knowledge base, right? We wanted to get the perspective, particularly from Black men. And so we borrowed a concept from the domestic violence field, which usually is used towards uh survivors of abuse, um, but they refer to them as listening listening sessions, where they bring together um, survivors and listen to their experiences related to specific topics um, in order to inform practices and policies uh, and research. Uh, So we brought together Black men to listen to their perspective about domestic violence, Um, and we call these um, town halls. And so we've had... um, 
I can't think of his three or four town hall sessions, but we've had a handful of town hall sessions uh, where we've asked black men to speak to their understanding about domestic violence and, and um, to share some of the needs of black men as allies. So we want it ultimately uh, to develop a program to help black men to be allies towards um, black women in preventing domestic violence. Uh, so we wanted to understand what they knew about the issue up front. And, and so we could kind of come in and fill that gap. Uh, we also wanted to understand their, about um, their experiences. And so we didn't ask them to have a history of, of, of abuse um, or, or domestic violence, but we did want them to speak to their own experiences as well as their peers um, so that we could really get a better understanding about what's happening in Black communities and what's needed to move forward and reduce the rates of violence. Uh, and we've, we're also, based off of um, some of that work, we are developing a specialized ally program for Black barbers. Um, and so that program is intended to provide barbers with information about how they can be allies towards Black women and towards um, preventing and reducing rates of um, domestic violence. Thank you for that. And I definitely want to come back to that. Your idea is related to engaging Black barbers and Black communities as allies um, in this in this work, but I alluded a little bit earlier to this idea of intersectionality and social location. Now, I know there's disagreement in the field um, in regards to uh, whether or not Black men have male privilege. I wonder if you'd be willing to share with our listeners, what is your professional opinion and how do you address this, this controversy? Sure. So with, from my experience in the field working with um, uh clients who are mandated to participate in um, abuse intervention. So individuals who'd uh, been mandated by the courts uh, because of um, committing a, abuse against their partner. Uh, I know that is, is, is a challenging concept for black men to get behind is this idea about male privilege. And that's one of the spokes on the power and control wheel is using male privilege. So in, 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 in that regard, it means treating their partner like they have control over their partner um, just by nature or, or by virtue of them being a man, right? And they get to make all the decisions for the household and they get to um, control how their partner interacts with the world and, and their resources. Um, and so male privilege... Uh, you know, as black men, we recognize that black men are oppressed by, by, um, by, uh, because of their race, right? So then to say that they also have privilege is kind of a hard concept for some folks to understand. But as you were saying earlier, we have multiple identities and some of our identities have more or less power and privilege. And so you can be male and have privilege as a man and black and, ha and, and have a disadvantage as a person of color. Uh, for instance, um, I guess another example, I am 
just under five foot tall. <laughs> uh, and uh, I, I have some disadvantage as a person who is a slightly below average height, <laughs> right? But I also have some privilege as um, I have a doctoral degree. You know, I um, uh, have some privilege, some other identities that um, allow me to have more access and power uh, over my, my life and, and myself. So they can exist at the same time. And, and as you were speaking about the intersectionality, just being able to hold both ideas, both concepts at the same time is really important. So we did have a town hall session specifically devoted to Black male privilege because there is some debate in the fields about whether Black men have privilege, though clearly my opinion is that, you know, they do. <laughs> Uh, and so we had a, a town hall session, and, and the information that the participants provided was that um, they recognized, the Black men did recognize that they had privilege, but their privilege looked different from, like, the majority group. So they have privilege as men, but it showed up differently, and, and, and they also recognized that they didn't have um, as much privilege as um, their white counterparts, Right. So uh, just being able, again, to recognize that um, and to have this intersectional perspective is really important as you uh, as as you discuss male black male privilege, rather. Thank you for that. That's that's very helpful for understanding that. Um, I wonder in we were talking earlier, we started the conversation by talking about micro is macro and macro is micro. In your opinion, does the interplay between systemic oppression and access to power based on race, does that impact power dynamics in that power and control wheel that you were talking about in Black communities? Absolutely. Absolutely. So um, during our during our um, uh, uh, town hall sessions, uh, particularly the one focused on black male privilege, uh, some of the participants talked about kind of leveraging their power for uh, their partner. So they recognized that they had in, in, in certain ways uh, more power than their partner and they were able to, um, uh, on a more of a micro level, use that power and privilege in order to benefit their partner. Um, so being kind of sensitive to that. So it's possible to uh, really recognize, listen, I have power and privilege in one way and I can use it to the, to the advantage of someone who doesn't have that power. Um, but also uh, looking at ways in which we are oppressed and, and, and how we might be able to empower ourselves on, on a micro level is also important as well. Absolutely, I had not thought about that that idea that that it helps to um, it helps people to empathize with their partner and have that deeper understanding of access to power in that way. Thank you for that, uh, Dr. Howard. How is working with men different from working with women in this context? Sure. So, uh, it is it's it's an interesting experience. Um, to engage men in a discussion about domestic violence, particularly given that historically the domestic violence field has um, participated in, um, let's say, 
uh, male bashing, I suppose. And, and we can also look at historically, there have been perceptions about feminist theory uh, and how it has really been very critical of men overall. And so I, when I open up that discussion uh, with men being, being female, working with men, um, that history is there, right? And I, I have to directly confront that. I have to really make sure that I am leading with the understanding that they may be reluctant to have conversations to engage with this topic, um, particularly with me. Uh, and so I think just kind of, it can be disarming to just confront it head on and say, listen, I'm not here to bash you. Or I know that sometimes that has happened or, you know, you guys have not been um, uh, really embraced in this field. However, I am here to work collaboratively with you because I know that there's there's an opportunity here. Um, so just kind of being sensitive to that. Uh, it's not really a conversation that is necessary when you're working with women, right? So you have to kind of um, recognize, I guess, the elephant in the room. Uh, and then there's also, uh, you know, men, we're talking about these the different behaviors that uh, are common in um, mainstream culture, right? And so it's possible when we're engaging with men that we're talking about behaviors that they have engaged in as well. Uh, and, and that can be to a, a larger or smaller um, degree. Um, but there's some guilt there and we have to be able to address that and be sensitive to that and um, really give people a kind of space to have emotional reactions to the discussions. Uh, and when I was working with the abuse intervention program, it was typically the person who uh, gave us the hardest time during sessions, right, who was really challenging and questioning and critical of the topics and, and um, really en engaged, but really giving us, giving us a hard time. <laughs> um, those were the ones who were actually doing the work at home uh, because we uh, also checked in with their partners um, during the course of, of services. And, we, and, and the people who gave us the hardest time were the ones who were really trying to do the work. Uh, and so giving people space uh, just to have questions and to have emotions uh, as they are engaging in this work. So that's a little different from working with women as well. Um, and, and really kind of, it's so important to kind of break down some of these ideas that are very prevalent in our culture. And, and it may be kind of common knowledge or, um, you know, we might be able to agree as women, but when you're working with men, you really have to have those conversations and come to an understanding about topics that maybe they thought they knew <laughs> or, you know, that they thought were acceptable um, and kind of confronting them on, on those topics can be a, a bit of a challenge, certainly very different from working with women in this field. That makes a lot of sense. What strategies, Dr. Howard, what additional strategies have you identified for engaging Black men specifically as allies against the abuse of Black women? Sure. So um, in, in, in addition to, you know, confronting uh, that elephant in the room about the history um, of male bashing in this field, uh, we also have to develop rapport is really important uh, just to, to be familiar or try to become familiar and um, to develop a trusting relationship. 
Uh, and it's also uh, important to operate from a strengths perspective. So many Black communities can be very sensitive to more pathological perspectives, uh, and they really don't want to hear about all the problems in the Black community. They don't want someone coming in saying that we're a problem. And, um, and, and so really coming from a strengths perspective is really important in this work as, as well. Uh, and another strategy uh, I would say is about screening. So you want to screen, when you're working with men, you want to screen people for uh, suitability for this kind of work. Uh, research says that men who are not prepared to really confront their position in society and how they benefit from uh, you know, sexism and, and this, this system that's um, really holds up these uh, abusive behaviors, um, if they're not prepared to confront that and, and, and really to be sensitive to women's issues, their resistance behaviors can be very counterproductive. Uh, and so just meeting them where they are and just recognizing that some folk are not prepared uh, to, to engage in this work and they can become prepared. Uh, you can recommend reading material or movies or, you know, um, you, you can give them some materi material to help them to start to confront um, some of these concepts, these really heavy concepts. Uh, but you just want to make sure that you're, you are identifying people who are appropriate for this work um, and, and making sure that we're being sensitive to that. That makes a lot of sense. With that in mind, if someone were to be working to uh, maybe develop a training program, working with Black male allies in this field, what are some critical elements that you think would be really important to think about beforehand in developing a program such as this? Sure. Uh, so we talked about the power and control wheel. Um, a complementary model is the equality wheel. So the equality wheel highlights um, equality behaviors or, or tactics that that um, uh, share responsibility, that um, address mutual interests, that make people feel good within a relationship, the good stuff of relationships, the things that you should do in your relationships. Uh, and so the equality real, wheel is really great, a uh, great tool uh, that instead of focusing on all of the terrible things that we shouldn't do in our relationships, we can kind of focus on some good things and promote and lift up those um, positive things to do. Uh, and that's a really great strengths-based perspective. So we can talk about um, what is acceptable and what is promotive in a relationship. And just by, um, just by that comparison, we can start to see what's not acceptable, right? So we can focus on the good and uh, people can start to see what is what's outside the bounds of that. Uh, so if you're operating from a strengths perspective, the equality wheel can be really helpful. Uh, another element, um, the with our town hall sessions, we learned that uh, the Black men wanted safe spaces to have conversations. They actually... They were very interested in continuing the discussion and continuing to come together as men. And they said that they, they because it was a racially homogenous space, it was a space where 
um, you know, people looked like them, had shared experiences, shared history and culture. They felt like they could talk freely. Um, so that was one thing that they said they wanted out of their group. Um, and we also, uh, it was helpful and the literature supports that women should be in the room having this discussion. So um, we believe that a model in which it is led by women and, and talking, engaging men is also very helpful. Um, and we already mentioned the intersectionality. Um, that's really important. That's one component that's missing from a lot of the ally programs is that they don't tend to focus on the cultural context. They, um, they, don't, they don't tend to focus on the different uh, identities and how they influence the issue of, of domestic violence and how we show up for uh, women. That makes a lot of sense. Um, what would you say are some of the most important lessons that you've learned from this this important work that you're doing? Sure. Um, I was surprised to hear that a lot of the the participants had a history of um, domestic violence exposure or emotional neglect. Uh, that so many times the research will link. Um, you know, domestic violence exposure and emotional neglect to using abuse in your relationship. But here we saw that it drove them to want to uh, be the change, right? They, they wanted to help people to have healthy relationships. They wanted to be role models. They wanted to create change for other people. Um, and so I was, I, I was surprised just to hear about, you know, that really, um, their, their, their vulnerability and uh, how that motivated, that, that moved them to want to be allies for women and reducing um, domestic violence. Uh, we also, uh, and another important takeaway is that so many of the participants, they didn't just want to be allies, they wanted to mentor younger males. They wanted to mentor um, young adults and, and adolescents. Um, and they even recognized that, you know, you just want to start young. You want to start with even ele elementary age children and just help them to uh, understand what healthy behavior, healthy relationships are and what they should do in relationships. And they wanted to support them and, and provide them with that, um, the uh, emotional security. So they really wanted to be allies and mentors. Um, another uh, finding was that many of the participants who showed up and, and they're interested in being allies had a history of counseling or spiritual mentorship. And so, of course, their, their vulnerabilities, their, those early childhood, very devastating um, experiences brought them to the point where they um, sought help and um, the, the counseling and, and, and the spiritual training were really helpful in terms of getting them to a point where they could show up for other folk. Um, so I think, you know, even just a lesson when we're looking at people who may be prepared to undertake this work, it may be people who are, are going through counseling or who already are ready doing the work for themselves. Um, so, and, uh, in fact, that may even be, you know, appropriate um, recruitment grounds, right, for um, identifying people who are prepared to do this kind of work. 
That's amazing. That idea of uh, feeling a sense of ownership of self and that idea of wanting to become an ally and wanting to give back to the community in different ways. Um, I think that's fantastic. I think that that is a good segue to circle back around. I'm very interested in um, hearing more about the work that that you've been doing in engaging barbers in Black communities as allies in this work. So how did you how did you first begin working with barbers in black communities to be allies in this work? Sure. Um, so in the domestic violence literature, one um, strategy that that shows up is uh, working with hair stylist um, and helping them to identify the red flags of domestic violence, not to train them to be counselors, but to help them understand what um, a, someone at risk for harm might look like and to be able to direct those folk to resources. Uh, and so um, after, you know, studying about that, I decided to become a certified trainer for a national program that, that works with hairstylists and trains them in anti-domestic violence work. Uh, and as I was, you know, working with this program, I started to think about barbers and I was thinking, what uh, so we know that barbers are role models particularly in black communities and there's a lot of uh, shop talk that takes place right there's a lot of discussions about life things and and really important uh information is exchanged there is a very intimate space and so i was kind of thinking that some of the same characteristics that make beauty stylists like really instruments on this work are true for barbers um, and so I wanted to develop a program specifically for barbers, uh, but I wasn't really sure about how to go about that. And I really wanted to be um, culturally sensitive. I wanted it to, to resonate with their personal experiences and individual needs uh, and, and to be effective, right? So um, we started with the town hall sessions just getting their perspective so that we could it would inform a program for barbers. Uh, and so we started working with informal community leaders and um, people who identify themselves as, you know, um, doing community work and, and, um, and, and being a resources to their communities and, and getting their perspective. And then we started um, kind of, we developed a survey for barbers um, so that we could get their perspective about how they might be able to be instrumental in this topic or in this 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 issue. So um, we started working uh, with the listening sessions or town hall events and getting their perspective to inform uh, additional work and then specifically targeting barbers and getting their their insight. Um, and, and so that's where we are currently. That That's amazing. Um, so what is it about barbers specifically that make them ideal allies in the fight against intimate partner violence? You talked about their positionality within the community. I wonder if you could expand a bit on that. Absolutely. Um, so, well, we know in, in, um, in barbershops, uh, they hear a lot. <laughs> And uh, there are these really critical conversations taking place in barbershops. So they become informed about different perspectives and they become informed about 
topics and needs in black communities. And so in that way, they are really instrumental. They, they, they have the gift for gab of gab. Like they can really um, engage people in conversations, uh, and they tend to be close with their clients. They have a relationship with their clients where they come in on a regular basis. Uh, they talk with their clients about you know personal topics, uh, and so that relationship can be an opportunity for a barber to identify there are some things that this person is engaging in that may not be appropriate, that that may not be healthy for their relationship or for their partner. Uh, So they can hear, they can listen for red flags. Um, So kind of different from uh, the, the the beauty stylists are really listening for victimization. Um, and the barbers uh, can listen for perpetration, right? They can listen for um, signs that their client is engaging in harmful behaviors, and and they can initiate those conversations that make them think differently. We didn't think uh, that it's appropriate to have them physically intervening or intersecting themselves in the personal life of their client, but certainly they can give them some something to think about. They can give them resources, information. They can kind of challenge their ideas, which is kind of the work that you do with abuse intervention programs. Uh, so really challenging people to think differently, to change um, these toxic narratives and, and, and uh, values about a, a man's right to um, to dominate their partner Uh, so barbers can be really instrumental in that sense that makes a lot of sense so in your work to engage the barbers in your community i know that part of that entailed um, developing a survey can you share with our listeners a little bit about what that process involved in developing a survey how you were able to reach out and connect with various barbers in in different communities and and maybe a little bit about what you learned from your survey with barbers. Sure, absolutely. Uh, so we developed a survey, um, again, working with Samaritan House. Uh, we developed a survey to understand what the barbers felt. Because my, my opinion is that there's a, there's a close relationship between a barber and a client, and they're having these conversations, and so therefore they can be instrumental uh, in, in changing minds, right? Uh, and I just wanted to know, well, do the barbers think the same? <laughs> uh, or, or am I just projecting my own stuff onto them? Um, and so the the, the, the survey kind of asks about that. It explores what is your experience as a barber? Are, are barbers really influential in their clients' private lives? Um, and, uh, you know, are they interested in being allies? Are they interested in having conversations with their clients that challenge their thinking? Uh, and so I uh, will, uh, my colleague over at Samaritan House, we've been going to different barbershops in our local community. Uh, and we've been uh, asking, engaging, you know, telling them the, the barbers about our, our idea and telling them about our goals. Uh, and and asking them to complete the surveys, and they've been very receptive. They've been very welcoming, uh, and they were excited about the opportunity to 
work in this area and they felt that's as though it really did validate their position within the community uh, so they appreciated that we also heard that some of the barbers are already engaging in some of this work we, there was a local barber shop that has started to hold mental health um, um, mental health workshops uh, in the evenings for their clients and they have you know experts come in and speak with them their their client their um, and, you know, so they already recognize how instrumental they are in the community and how, how much uh, value they have in terms of putting out good information and promoting healthy behaviors and promoting health and wellness. Uh, and so it aligned with what's already happening in barbershops. Um, they, uh, so some of the preliminary findings, uh, I haven't, uh, haven't um, completely completed the uh, data analysis, but uh, from looking at some of the preliminary findings, it did confirm uh, some of my beliefs. So, uh, so the, the barbers overwhelmingly indicated that they are interested in being allies. They want to help uh, intervene in this issue. They want to help reduce rates of domestic violence. They want to show up for Black women. Uh, and they also indicated that they do have a close relationship with their clients, and they are influential, and um, they do believe that their clients will listen to them and take their advice. And they, they indicated that they feel safe and comfortable, you know, imparting wisdom and in informing clients um, they also indicated that they were interested in, you know, being trained and, and becoming allies and, and participating in this work. Um, so uh, I'm excited about, you know, next step, next step, excuse me, next steps, <laughs> uh, and really finalizing the curriculum to train barbers and getting the barbers in uh, to do some of the work and, and seeing how that goes. That's amazing. Um Thank you for sharing all of that. I think that I and many of our listeners are, are just as excited to see, um, once you complete your data analysis, to see what some of these findings are and to, and to follow this important work that, that you're doing to develop this curriculum to more fully engage barbers in, in being allies in this, in this type of work. Dr. Howard, I know that you are the founder and president of Communities in Power. I wonder, uh, before we end our podcast today, would you be willing to share with our listeners a little bit about the important work that Communities in Power are doing is doing as well? Sure, absolutely. Um, so some of this work started with that organization. Um, Communities in Power, as I mentioned before, I have my clinical license, and so much of our field is very micro-oriented, and I really wanted to do macro work. Um, so I started this nonprofit organization that's really focused on doing macro um, and focus on bringing the community together to heal, to grow, to learn, um, and and uh, in particular, this organization is culturally specific, so focuses on Black communities and you know some of the the, the needs of Black communities and how we might be able to work together in order to address them, and it's really 
uh, central to the organization is education. I clearly, I believe in the value of education, right? Um, I'm an educator myself and um, uh, I believe that education is really transformative. So the core of much of the work that we do is education. And um, the, the ally program uh, actually started off um, with communities in power collaborating with Samaritan House um, in order to inform and, and educate and elevate um, Black males about the issue of domestic violence and how they can be um, instrumental in this work and reducing rates of, of violence and promoting healthy behaviors and promoting healthy relationships. Uh, and so um, communities in power, we, we, um, we provide macro interventions working with the community and for the community. Uh, and uh, we have other programs that uh, focus on other areas of need in particular, um, such as uh, healthy eating. Uh, so we've had we've had some sessions focused on that. One area, particularly in Hampton Roads, which is where um, Communities in Power is situated, uh, has uh, nationally, but particularly in Hampton Roads, we have some very uh, critical housing issues, housing disparities, and so. We've worked a lot in the area of housing, helping people to understand their rights and resources uh, to maintain housing um, and, uh, and and to become homeowners and uh, to have stable um, home ownership because, you know, that's getting the house is the first step, right? And sometimes the hardest step, it can be, you know, the, the stability of that home, maintaining that home. Uh, and so we've uh, done a lot of work in terms of identifying what are some of the systemic issues and how we might be able to get, empower ourselves um, to address them. Um, and uh, yes, so those, that's some of the work that we do. I appreciate you sharing that with us. I think it's important that we um, we have those conversations and looking at what are those systemic uh, factors that are impacting, whether we're working in child welfare, whether we're working in mental health, or whether we're working in the area of uh, inter, inter, intimate partner violence, excuse me, um, having that understanding that things like education attainment, things like employment status, and especially socioeconomic status and how those um, sociological factors uh, impact uh, the, the families that we're working with in different ways. In, in what ways, Dr. Howard, has your, your work, both micro and macro, informed your teaching and in how you approach these conversations with your students in the classroom? Absolutely. So I believe, um, you know, the, there's this, uh, the, the bifurcation of, of our field, right? The micro versus the macro. Um, and I, I believe that I, because I have an interest in both, and I have experience in both that I am able to really integrate, you know, those different um, uh, areas of practice. And and our code of ethics says that we should be both micro and macro practitioners, right? Um, but sometimes that's lost. When I was in school, I I believe that 
there was not a strong focus on macro. And so I try to bring a strong focus on, on macro practice, uh, which they may not necessarily get up, uh, elsewhere. Uh, and especially a lot of students come in with no interest in macro at all, which hurts my feelings. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> uh, so I try to motivate them uh, towards more macro practice, or at least like um, maintaining that dual um, responsibility. Um, and I also try to expose them to other opportunities outside of micro. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think it's just so important to really understand all that you can do as a, as a macro clinician or excuse me, practitioner and just how much, I mean, the scope of the work uh, and the potential impact is, in my opinion, much greater than micro. If you're mm-hmm. working, especially with these shared issues, right, you can impact so many people with just one intervention as opposed to working one-on-one with, in, with individuals. Um, so that's just my bias right there, but <laughs> but I do try to bring a strong focus on, on macro and looking at the integration of the micro and the macro. And I speak a lot about my field experiences. Um, I'm sure you're aware students uh, really love to hear mm-hmm. about what it actually looks like in the field, and right. they love to hear field stories. So I try to bring that as well. Yeah, that practice experience is so invaluable. And thank you for sharing that. It's always refreshing to have conversations with like-minded social work educators because it really is important, I think, that this next generation of social workers understand the interplay between macro-level policy issues and between systemic um, oppression and systemic uh, access to power and how that has a, a very direct impact on the individuals that we're working with. I think it's important that we have an understanding of micro-level needs to help inform our macro-level practice, but also conversely that those those macro-level changes uh, definitely impact our, our work at the micro-level. Dr. Howard, our, our time is up for this podcast, but I want to thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for the work that you're doing and, and for sharing um, a little bit about this exciting opportunity and this idea that you had of engaging, uh, especially barbers and, and other Black men as allies in, in, in Black communities in your work with inner with uh, intimate partner violence. Thank you so much for being here, Dr. Howard.